listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam. I'm telling you. Welcome back to the Red Sea Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster for episode 261 of the show. Keaton, this is the last podcast of the 2022 season. We purposefully recorded this after the last game of the season this week instead of our normal Monday show. How do you feel at the end of this uh, miserable season? Uh, do you... How will you remember 2022? Frustrating. Very frustrating. I think uh, I think we all had very different expectations coming into the season. And this, uh, especially the way that it started, was very frustrating. And then uh, we'll tease there in the middle with that massive hot stretch in June where they were the hottest team in baseball. Um, and then briefly in first place in the division uh, or or maybe better than second behind the Yankees because they were on some absurd pace. Yeah, um, I don't think they ever caught the Yankees. Yeah, but they were rolling, doing some absurd things there, positioning themselves well, and then uh, really struggled towards the trade deadline, didn't know what direction the team was going. Trade line didn't help clarify any of that. And then they just continued to struggle all the way to the end. And it was just really frustrating. And I think um, Cora's comments, I can't. I don't know if it was today or if it was yesterday, but I saw the quote today that he said that we're like the best worst team in MLB history. And it's like just frustrating how we ended up that way. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's about right. I feel the same way. It's <laughs> pretty spot on. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd go with best worst team. I feel like. There are definitely some contenders here, but I mean, I think he's on to something. There was a lot of underperformance on this team, a lot of injuries for sure. Um, we will always have, what was it, June when they went like 22 and yeah. four or something crazy. Um, but yeah, there, there wasn't a whole lot of highlights from this season. Um, but on this episode, what we're going to be doing here is... Um, because I had about an hour and a half of time to kill today, I, uh, deep dove into the Red Sox history to see just sort of where this season ranked in terms of futility. And, um, we have a whole lot of numbers and some facts about the 2022 season, uh, that we're going to get to. We're going to put this really weird stretch of, uh, Red Sox baseball here in the 2010s into context. Uh, and then we're going to discuss in order, um, you know, these these different pending free agents, um, Nathan Eovaldi, uh, J.D. Martinez, and Xander Bogarts. The reason why we're going to focus on those three is because, you know, they're obviously uh, the ones who have been here the longest. You know, we're, there are a couple other guys up, Fam, Waka, Hill, and, and some other names as well that we really won't get to on this show. But, you know, we're going to focus on all that stuff today. Um, so let's go ahead and, and, uh, get right to the numbers here. Um, so this team, um, finished in last place and before, uh, your least favorite Red Sox team of all time, the Bobby Valentine 2012 Red Sox, um, their previous, uh, last place finish prior to 2012, uh, was in 1992. So that's a pretty long stretch uh, between last place finishes, 1992 to 2012. Prior to 1992, the team didn't finish last place in their division uh, and uh, all the way back to 1932. So we're talking about just two last place finishes in 79 years. So fast forward from 2012, the Red Sox have finished in last place five times in just 11 seasons, 2012, 2014, 2015, 
2020-2022. This is a really weird stretch for the Red Sox because the other weird thing is they've been also extremely successful. They won the World Series in 2013 and 2018, and they finished first place four times, 2013, 2016, 2017, 2018. This is the oddest stretch of baseball in Red Sox history that we've just lived through. The highest of highs, the lowest of lows, really weird. That's nuts. That's such a swing in success. And not only that, like a lot of those first place finishes and last place finishes, well, I mean, with nine first place slash last place finishes in 11 years, they're kind of like bound to happen back to back. But a lot of them were like sandwiched next to each other. Um, but a lot of the same players, not a lot of turnover. So it's just, it's just kind of hilarious to see like repetitive talent hitting highs and lows in consecutive years and finishing last in the division and then winning the world series and then finishing last again and then finishing first in the division again <laughs> later with like the same core. And, um, it's hard to, I think, quantify the effect that a manager has on, uh, Major League Baseball team in particular, of all of the four major sports, I think the Major League Baseball is the hardest to quantify. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might be your best case to to really try to quantify it. Um, but then also the the effect of role players and um, the effect of uh, having a solid uh, chemistry in the dugout, because I, I really think that there are the major differences between those first and last place finishes was basically having the same core guys was a managerial flip or like one or two goo guys in the clubhouse. And it completely changed the entire trajectory of full seasons, full 162 game slates. Uh, and it wasn't major tweaks, uh, which is a, a really weird thing that I, I think is the hardest to quantify in baseball. But I also think like baseball is probably the only sport where a small tweak like that could have that, major of an effect on the team so what makes baseball great yeah i i think i agree with you that um the human component of it that you're talking about um you know especially when you're playing over 162 games plus playoffs um you know sometimes more if you end up having to play in a game 163 that doesn't exist anymore um but yeah i mean there's just a lot that goes into that these guys travel together they essentially live together and eat every meal together for you know more than half the year uh, when you factor in uh, spring training and stuff like that. So, yeah, those relationships really, really do matter quite a bit. Um, a couple more numbers to, to kind of wrap up how weird this is. Um, the team has 18 first-place finishes in the entire 122-year history of the team. Obviously, the Red Sox very storied franchise dates all the way back to 1901. Um, the four first place finishes that they've had in the 2010s actually match a high for any decade. Um, they also had four first place finishes in the 1910s, uh, so 100 years between. Uh, in that decade, they won four World Series. So their second, third, fourth, and fifth World Series, 1912, 1915, 1916, and 1918. Keaton, a strange thing happened after uh 1918 do you remember what that was well i wasn't there well (laughs) i know you weren't (laughs) but you were there for for part of this strange thing the red sox had an 86 year drought after that um which ended in 2004 so what i'm hoping keaton is that uh, the red sox winning uh in 1918 and 2018 and having a super successful 1910s and a super successful 2010s uh that history does not repeat itself (laughs) and that we don't go 86 more years without another title uh yeah for sure are you um so what would this would be the curse of the bets this would be the curse of the bets. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, hopefully it's uh, extremely short-lived. Or what would we call it? Like, uh, if we wanted to rhyme it with Mookie, maybe it could be like... The Spooky the, of the Mookie? The Spooky of the Mookie or something <laughs> like that. Like something, yeah. Um, I don't know. But yeah, we'd have to come up with something. Something a little bit, uh, a little bit, a little bit more fun to say. 
Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's weird. You know, it's baseball. When you look at it, it's obviously got a much longer history uh, than any of the other major sports uh, in this country. And, and certainly it is weird when you are diving into the numbers and you come across things like that, that just, uh, you know, what are the odds that the two most successful decades are exactly 100 years apart? You know, it's just, it's, it's weird. Sure is. But baseball tends to just almost be deliberately weird like that. Just <laughs> yeah. to make us think terrible thoughts like that. But it's yep. it's like not isolated. It's like that for like every team and just like all over the place. Yeah. And uh, also, you know, 100 years since uh, the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth, we have, you know, this a little bit more, more than 100 years, but we have this uh, crazy Shohei Otani guy running around and yeah. doing even better stuff. Uh, than Babe Ruth ever did on both sides of the ball. So what a wild time to be alive. Yeah. All right, so let's get to um, some facts about the actual 2022 Boston Red Sox. Um, I wanted to see just how bad they were and, and some of the things that made this team so bad. So, you know, I don't know necessarily if all of these things are what made them bad, but there's certainly things that I found interesting uh, when I was looking through. So let's go ahead and start with the first one. This is the oldest team that the Red Sox have had uh, since the 2013 team that won the World Series. The pitchers on this team averaged over 30 years old, 30.2. The batters almost 29, 28.8 years old. They finished 22 games behind the division-leading Yankees which trailed only the 2012 and 2014 Red Sox uh, or for games behind the division leaders since the division was made up of just the five teams that it is now. Um, fan attendance for this year, not very strong. Uh, they drew 2.6 million fans uh, to Fenway this year, a little bit over that, whereas their peak years have been 3 million-plus fans. Um this, when I looked at where this would fall in terms of attendance, it fell right in line with like 2000, 2001 levels of attendance for the Red Sox. So before any curse was broken, when, you know, coming off some, some years that were interesting, but certainly years that the Yankees were still very good and the Red Sox hadn't won, won anything. So um, let me first ask you about the fan attendance thing, because we did a whole podcast on where the Red Sox rank in terms of the Boston hierarchy um, of sports teams. You know, does this say anything to you that the Red Sox attendance has dipped to levels that it hasn't really seen in, you know, 20 years here? Um, what, if anything, what does this tell you about the team? Maybe a little bit, but I wouldn't read a whole lot into it because uh, just because fans aren't, they're live at the games doesn't mean that they're not watching and like streaming numbers for games is still pretty high red sox games uh and baseball not even just red sox but baseball games in local markets are still dominating um the shares of viewers every night um so just because people aren't going to games in person that would just tell me that it's just too expensive to attend and it's just hard to attend um, which makes a lot of sense because it is as prices and cost of everything in ballpark continues to rise at just astronomical rates. Um, it makes it harder and harder to attend and much easier to just watch the game at home. And you can still yeah. make those same memories with your family at home watching games. Um, I don't have, quite the same feeling, but you still have make the same connection over the team, the players um, bonding over the games, uh, watching it at home at a significantly decreased cost um, than you would at the game. So I, that's kind of how I've always felt about it. Like I know like the in-stadium attendance of baseball gets brought up all the time and it's like continued to decline but baseball itself isn't going anywhere. They continue to get monster sponsorships. Um, 
each team or almost every team has its own local TV deal, um, which rakes in a bunch of money. Um, every single team is dominates is like number one for their uh, primetime local markets during the season. So it's people are still consuming it. They're just consuming it in different ways. So yeah, I, I wouldn't make sense into it. I, I, I do, uh, you know, think it's kind of funny, Keaton, that you are uh, doing a very 2022 thing and blaming inflation for the <laughs> coin games. Yeah. Um, but largely, I agree with your points. Yeah. I mean, I felt that way like a decade ago, too. Um, also, especially like, well, well, I guess a decade ago, I was still in the market, but. Uh, being outside of the market, like the only way to watch them now is when they come to Chicago in some way or form. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I, like streaming is the only option that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that's uh, the same for a ton of people. Uh, yeah. Like being able to go to a game is a luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, and even people within the the market of the team, um, like having to get to Boston first of all, is difficult if you're not, like, right around the area. It's like, I remember my dad taking me to games. Like, it was a whole thing. Um, He'd come pick me up out of school early. It'd be, like, a three-hour drive. Um, Then we'd have to go. We'd park at the Riverside Station, take the T in. we got to get there early. So, like, it was almost basically like a full-day event to go to a game. That's a lot beyond yeah. just the cost of actually attending. Like there's, there's a whole lot more associated with that, which makes it difficult. It's a lot easier to just sit at home in the living room and watch it. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly. And you're preaching in the choir here, especially, you know, I have a young kid. So um, I totally get that. Um, I probably went to even more games when I lived in D.C. And then nationals were just super cheap and really accessible yeah. and the metro is just easier than you know navigating the the MBTA with this the state that that's in these days uh, as well. So yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons why this this could be. Um, let's get back to the stats on the field though for for the 2022 team. Um, run scored for this team was under 740 uh, for the season, which is the first time it's been this low since 2014, one of those last place seasons we mentioned. They allowed 780-plus runs, which was the most since 2019. Uh, And it's only been worse than this uh, five times in the last 25 years, uh, dating back to 1997. So um, not a very good runs allowed. We know that pitching is is one of the biggest problems for this team and has been. We'll get get into detail uh, of that a little bit later. Um, I think one of the weirdest things for me was... You know, looking at this roster with J.D. Martinez and Rafael Devers and realizing that they didn't have a uh, 30-home run bat this year for the first time since 2017. But even stranger than that, they didn't have a guy reach even 90 RBIs. Um, Devers ended the year at 88 RBIs, um, you know, first time since 2012. Again, we're it's it's uh, it was striking how many times when I looked for when the last time X thing happened, it ended up being the 2012 year with Bobby Valentine that, um, you know, I know you wrote about when we wrote about our least favorite years uh, with yeah. this round table earlier or most frustrating years. So, you know, I was kind of surprised that 2012 uh, kept coming up here as a parallel for this season. Yeah, that you're sucked, man. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it so much. I'm not surprised, I'm not shocked in the slightest. Um, I am surprised though, um, right there with you that no 100 RBI, no even 90 RBI player, no one got to 30 home runs. Devers at 27 was just shy of that. That's pretty wild. It seemed yeah, really good players. Especially because, well, like if you look at Devers' first half, I don't know if if you talk to a, a bookie or Vegas or something about <laughs> what the odds are after Devers' first half that he doesn't get to 100 RBIs and uh, 
in, in at least 30 home runs, uh, I think you would have been a, a, a very rich man if you bet against that happening. Because um, the odds looked extremely in his favor. To be honest, at the half, I thought Devers was going to do something that he's never done before. I think I thought he was going to go and go 40-plus home runs and go all 2018 J.D. Martinez on us. Um, I thought it was going to be the season for him. So I think that's definitely one of the most shocking things is the fall-off that we saw from Rafael Devers in the second half. And whether that was health-related or whether it was mechanical or whatever, I don't think we'll... We'll really ever figure that out, but you know that was that was definitely bizarre. Well, I was just thinking. I feel like he was at like twenty four homers at the All Star break, so I just looked it up. He was at twenty two. He was at twenty two, yeah. <laughs> and he hit five in the second half. Five homers. That injury that just absolutely sucked everything out of him. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, it really did. Screwed a lot of things up. He kept insisting he was healthy, but clearly, I mean, something was just not working right. 22 homers and 55 RBIs at the All-Star break. That's crazy. It is. It really is. Yep. Um, Xander Bogarts was the only player on this team that hit over 300 this year. That in and of itself isn't that odd, um, but I think, you know, given... The way that um, Xander battled through injury all year, especially after a collision in May, um, you know, I was a little surprised at the the strong push that he made um, to um, go after the batting title. And obviously, he didn't get there, but you know, it was uh, it was a valiant effort in the season. Only two guys on this team with an OBP over 350. That was the fewest that this team has had since 2017. Again, just Rafi and um, and Xander there. And only one player slugging over 500. Uh, first year that that's happened um, since 2017 when no one did. Um, Devers was the only one that slugged over 500. Um, that was really surprising to me. I know the big knock on Xander this year, especially, you know, despite the season that he's had. It's been a very good season by war. But his power being down was a little bit odd. And then... You know, J.D. Martinez, who came back today and in his last game with the Red Sox probably, hit two home runs uh, to sort of close out his time with the Red Sox in all likelihood. Um, you know, not getting anything close to a 500 slug from him was was extremely surprising. That's pretty crazy. No one slugged over 500 for that team and they finished in first. I would not have expected that. Yeah, it was just like a very... There were a lot of people in the high 400s on that team um, and some good yeah. defense and, you know, some pretty good pitching performances. Um, Chris Sale was money in 2017. But, yeah, nobody over 500 that year. Very strange. That's pretty crazy. And they had uh, no 30 home run hitters and only one 100 RBIs. Yep. Crazy. Wow. How about that? How about that? Baseball's weird, man. I think we said that before. Yep, yep, yep. On the pitching side of things, um, this was the 20th worst pitching season ever in 122 <laughs> years uh, for the Red Sox. This was not 2020, so that's that's a good thing. Um, but by ERA, it was the worst since uh, you know the 2012, 2019, and 2020 se- se- seasons. Uh, if we're looking at uh, you know most recent bad seasons. Starters ERAs were 24th worst in Red Sox history. Bullpen ERA was 40th worst, although that's kind of a weird stat because they didn't really use bullpens for a lot of those early seasons. And uh, this was the one that I think was kind of the most surprising to me uh, and stood out was Nick Pavetta. Uh, He obviously pitched the game today. Um, Didn't have a great performance, but pitched okay. Um, 179 and two-thirds innings pitched by Nick Pavetta were the fewest innings to lead the team over a full season since Clay Buchholz threw 170 in a third innings in 2014. I never thought I would be talking about Clay Buchholz as a uh, innings leader uh, for a team. I completely forgot that happened. Yeah, I 
honestly never thought he got that high. I thought like he peaked at like 111. So that's kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a last place team. Um, so uh, apparently Clay Buckholtz being your innings pitch leader is not a good thing. Um, but yeah, he, he got there. Crazy. So would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> so before we move on to talking about players, uh, any other kind of closing thoughts on um, the 2022 Red Sox and this truly bizarre uh, stretch of history for the Red Sox with up and downs and, uh, you know, it's either last or it's first and there's only been two seasons in the last 11 years where they weren't last or first. So it's just a really freaking weird yeah, I mean, there was just a lot of weird things about this year, and the Nick Pavetta thing stands out in the fact that it wasn't even close. That second on the list is Michael Waka. Yeah. Uh, and right behind him by just a couple innings was Rich Hill, two guys that you and I didn't think would be top three um, and two guys that you thought probably weren't going to get over 100 or pretty close to that. Well, I um, thought... I thought um... Waka would. I thought he would get yeah. to 125, and he surpassed that by a little bit. Yeah. But I I did not think Rich Hill was even going to make it to, like, 80 innings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was surprising. Got way past that, and Evaldi way just barely it. got over 100. But, yeah, I mean, that in, it, in and of itself really tells a story that with those three guys leading the way, it's not shocking that they gave up a bunch of runs, although... Waka did have himself a really, really nice season. Um, but if those are the guys that are leading the way, then you got to figure, well, who came after them? And, you know, a whole lot of Cutter Crawford and Connor Seabold kind of doing you there. And, yeah. I mean, you talk about the frustration, like just the, um, the weirdness of Chris Sale's season and how frustrated he was with just the, like, cracking a rib weirdly in spring training and that being a massive setback. And then he finally comes back, takes a line drive off the pinky and that ends the season. And it's like, what, what about the fall off the bike too? Oh yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> that too. Like just what a, like what a mess. It's crazy. What an absolute it was mess. like one thing after another with Chris sale. I, I think that, you know, if we do one of these uh, sort of looking back in, in do-overs, if Devers never gets the injury that sort of derails his second half, J.D. hits a few more home runs. Like, let's just say he's not vintage J.D., but he's he's worth 10 more dingers. And Chris Sale actually comes back and is healthy for the rest of the season instead of getting the two freak injuries. I mean, this team's pushing for a playoff spot, right? They're, if those three things happen, they're pretty like close to the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, I mean, I would think so. Especially with the season that Bogarts had. I mean, they're eight wins behind Tampa. So you got to think like 70 innings at a sale, uh, a healthy Devers. And JD Martinez not hitting that sinkhole, that's got to be worth eight wins. Yeah. I would think so. That doesn't it, seem it, like a lot over 162 games, just eight wins. No, and even just like the mental boost of, of, you know, I think that's another thing that's underrated about having a guy like Sale. When Sale's right, he's taking the ball every five days. It just, it's a complete lift to the team. And yeah. I also think you get this, uh, this weird, like, kind of, trickle-down effect on the offense, too, because they don't feel like they need to go out and press that day. You know, they're like, yeah. okay, we can go out and score, like, two or three runs, and it's going to be fine. And I think that there's just this sort of mental refresh factor uh, that offenses get from having an ace be able to lift them up and carry that load every once in a while. Yeah. So. I'm happy to be closing the book on 20... 20- 22 um but i I think you know if if i had to close my thoughts on this you know the core is there and especially if they can figure out xander and uh devers 
they're they're a few tweaks away, I think, from this being still a very good baseball team. Um, and and I think that's been the key trait about these Red Sox teams in the uh, 2010s. And in you know, I I maybe didn't feel quite this way about 2022 because everything went or 2020 because everything went wrong that year. But yeah. um, you know, it it just feels like we're way closer to a first place team than a uh, last place team ought to feel. Yeah, for sure. Not a bad place to be, I guess, uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. At least you're not the, the, the Royals or something, or the Tigers, where it just looks like a complete dumpster fire. Yeah. All right, so um, let's get to the big-name players, though, that are going to uh, potentially be ending their careers with the Red Sox. And uh, in one case, uh, strong, strong no, please don't end your career with the Red Sox. But let's get to the first one. Nathan Eovaldi here had a very disappointing season um, by his standards, certainly uh, after the 2021 that he had. He ends his year with the Red Sox and his time with the Red Sox over five years with 461 and two-thirds innings pitched, a 4.05 ERA with the team, a 113 ERA+, 1.26 whip, uh, one all-star appearance, fourth in the Cy Young voting in 2021, uh, in a record of 26 and 18. Um, let's just take a second to appreciate Nate. I mean, if Nate does leave the team, Keaton, how are you going to remember Nathan Eovaldi when, you know, five years from now we're still doing this podcast because I think we're probably going to be. Um, but, you know, when we bring up that name, how will you think of Eovaldi? Um good when he was on the mound and his success often led to team success that's pretty good yeah I, I think I'll I'll always think of uh the 2018 playoffs for, for him sure. yeah and I'll always think of uh down the stretch in 2021 in in the team making a, a push a deeper push than I thought was going to be possible um for that 2021 team when it comes to the qualifying offer for Nathan Eovaldi, uh, where do you stand on that at this point? You know, finally having the whole season under our belt to assess the situation and getting to see a couple healthy starts from Nathan Eovaldi towards the end of the year. I feel better having seen the starts, to be honest with you, than also just taking stock of where the pitching is right now. I don't hate it. And kind of using my, my favorite website here, Spotrack here, um, they have his market value as uh, $16.7 million, mm-hmm. uh, probably looking at like a two-year deal. Um, that's not that far off from qualifying offer. I think it's maybe like a million and a half off Might of be a little qualifying bit more than that. offer. Yeah, I think the, the QO was high 18s last year. So, yeah, probably a couple mil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for one year, I actually don't feel all that bad about it, especially given the state of the the pitching rotation Mm -hmm. and a presumably healthy, um, Nate Evaldi coming into the season. Uh, you probably have to figure maybe miss some time during the season, but the pitching is not in great, great standing right now. Um, we know that he can handle... Boston and the AL East and if their intention is to build something formidable for next year um you'd be a nice little part of it so um and then if he declines and goes somewhere else he can get a draft pick out of it so I think um I think it makes sense hmm. I'm not there with you um, on Eovaldi, I think one of the things that worried me about, you know, the, the whole kind of second half of the season after he, he suffered his injury and he came back and he was pitching through it and then, you know, was out for a little while longer, even when he came back for these last two starts, the velocity wasn't quite where, you know, 2021 Eovaldi was or where he's been for most of his time with the Red Sox. And, you know, as he ages, 
we all know the the injury history that Nathan Eovaldi has carried um, throughout his career. I just think that's kind of expensive for a year of Nathan Eovaldi where health, I think, is still a, a relatively big question. And, you know, you mentioned it, I think, for the same reasons that you kind of want to bring him back is all the uncertainty in the pitching staff next year. You know, we don't know what we're getting out of Chris Sale. Pavetta's not great, but he's going to throw innings. Uh, and then Waka and Hill, you know, potentially being gone as well. It seems like Hill for sure. Um, I just feel like you need a little bit more of a sure thing. And I just, I think there's better ways to allocate that money. And, um, you know, when it comes to the draft pick, the fact that they idiotically uh, decided to, you know, still be over uh, the luxury tax threshold means that that's a fourth rounder instead of a second rounder. Uh, if anyone else signs them into me, I just, I think it's too risky. It's interesting, though, because a couple starts before he went on the IL again, I asked you, how concerned were you that his velocity was down and mm-hmm. didn't seem to be gaining it back? And you said you were not concerned at all with his ability to regain his velocity or at least pitch around it. He has a lot of pitches. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like... I don't think the velocity is the thing that makes him great because I've seen people tee up off of his 97-mile-an-hour fastball. But I do think that there's something about him not having this velocity that makes him a little less confident to pitch the way that he normally does. And I feel like he just nibbles a little bit more with this reduced stuff. And if he can get around that, like, you know, as as Eck has described far better than I ever can he he has like the whole kitchen sink of of pitches and weapons out there and he uses them all during games too so you know he's he's definitely capable of doing it I'm just worried about you know if if they sign him to a QO and Eovaldi gives you 100 innings next year that's a pretty big disaster in my opinion But what if it's the last 100 innings? Are you in the playoffs? Yes. (laughs) Well, then maybe that's a different story. (laughs) But, you know, at this point, I'm feeling a little risk-averse, so I'm going to stay away. That's fair. Yeah. Um, Next guy, J.D. Martinez. So, uh, appreciating JD, um, this, this signing, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that the signing of JD Martinez is the best signing the Red Sox have made free agent signing since Manny Ramirez. Um, here are his ranks in Red Sox history at DH. He's second in games played at 643. Over five seasons, he slashed 291, 362. 524, that line's a little bit better uh, with today, but hasn't updated yet. Uh, 130 home runs, that is up to date with today. 886 OPS, 423 RBIs, and a 133 OPS plus. Two Silver Slugger Awards in 2018, which is still one of the funniest things. Uh, Fourth in the 2018 AL MVP voting. Four-time All-Star, and uh, yeah, just overall... An incredible signing for the Red Sox. Yeah, for sure. And he really kind of closed this season pretty impressively. Over his last 15 games, uh, 315, 351, 722 with five homers. Um, So it seems like whatever had been ailing him there for the, I don't know, the three-month stretch, big chunk of the season, he kind of figured out. Um, but I, I would assume that they're not going to extend that and that this was probably the end. That's interesting. Cause, um, I'm probably a no on the QO here, but I actually feel slightly better about the JD Martinez QO than I do about the Eovaldi QO at this point. Like, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I think I flipped. I flipped on those two guys, and I know that pitching is the more valuable thing, and obviously, like, if you get 
anything close to 2021 Ivaldi, um, you know, that then a QO is like, you know, a no brainer that works out very well for you. But with, with JD Martinez, like, first of all, if, if they try and go in house at DH, like, I don't think they have anything that's really worthwhile there. Uh, at this point, you know, you're talking about like Dahlbeck or Hosmer or something like that going to DH and, um, I don't really want to spend a ton of uh, long-term capital on the DH position. And J.D. Martinez, he's he's a known quantity here, and he's definitely a tinkerer. So it wouldn't totally shock me if he, you know, figured out a way to be produ- productive in um, in 2023. So yeah, I I'm uh, I'm not saying I want to do it. I don't want to extend the QO to either of these guys. But I'll be more okay with a QO to JD. That's interesting. Spotrack has yeah. his market value at 15.1 AAB. Okay. Very similar to uh, the Evaldi AAB. Yeah. I would feel better extending one to Evaldi than I would Martinez. Is it just because of the pure need on the pitching side, or is it because... Watching JD this year, you've thought, all right, it's he doesn't have it anymore. Well, well, I, I, it's a weird thing to say that he doesn't because his line, honestly, is like crazy similar to his line from 2021, just minus the homers. Yeah. It's like everything else is incredibly similar. Right. Like the... Uh, um, OBP is almost exactly the same. BABIP is almost exactly the same. Walk, out, uh, walk rate and strikeout rates are almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Batting average was down a little bit, um, down 14 points. But that's not a massive gap. No. Um, it's just he had half the home runs, which is nuts. Yeah. He, he did the same thing Xander did, just a little power outage this year. Yeah. Um, and you know, he has had the back issues that constantly bark at him and he definitely dealt with those this year. He missed a little bit of time because of back stuff. So, you know, I wonder if, uh, a little bit of, of something getting out of sync there, but you know, as you age, it's, it's not like your back tends to, uh, drastically improve with age. Yeah. That's, uh, that tends to get trickier as the years go on and especially doing a violent rotational movement like uh swinging a baseball bat so yeah i don't know but what to, to hear cora talk about jd martinez because uh, i always listen to the cora interviews that he does on weei before he gets on the games like cora is just not concerned about the fact that he's been so late on velocity and doesn't think that it's an age-related decline thing it's just something that jd martinez has to go back home and figure out in the lab so you know, I know that Cora is just often very optimistic with these guys, but I do think there is something to the fact that J.D. Martinez has been a pretty damn good fastball hitter over the, the last few years, and I'm not sure it's completely gone away. Yeah, I mean, so even looking beyond just the straight stat line and digging into some of like the actual contact metrics, his barrel percentage was basically the same as last year. Mm-hmm. Sweet, spot, sweet spot percentage was basically the same. Hard hit rate was down um, 8%, but last year it was in the top 10% of the league. So even being down 8%, it's still um, 6% above the major league average. So he's still yeah. hammering the shit out of the ball. Right. So And his exit velocity is also above major league average. So like he's still squaring it up. He's still hitting it really hard. It's just weird to see that the homers weren't there. Yeah. Uh, that that was another thing that Cora mentioned was the expected stats for him are just much better than what has come out on the field to kind of, you know, solidify everything that you just said. So, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I mean, you know, now that we talk about it, I guess I wouldn't, I'm more on board with a qualifying offer. I guess I'm, because of the age, I'm hesitant to go beyond a year. But right. a year, I think I'm fine with. Yeah, I, I'd be fine with a year for sure. All right, let's get to the biggest domino here. Uh, Xander Bogarts um, had a very emotional uh, game today and has had an emotional 
probably last month of the season, if not longer. Uh, probably emotional year for Xander Bogarts. And uh, Cora pulled him, I believe it was in the seventh inning today, and he got a big ovation and gave some hugs on the field and in the dugout and a nice sweet hug to Rafi. Um, because this could potentially be his last game in a Red Sox uniform. And I really hope that it's not. But if it is, here is how he ranks among Red Sox shortstop uh, history in all of the following categories. He is first in games played at 1,264. He's first in runs scored at 752. He's first in hits at 1,410. First in singles at 931. First in doubles at 308. He's eighth in triples at 15. Nomar had 50 freaking triples, which is crazy. Uh, he's second in home runs to Nomar at 156. He's third in RBIs uh, behind Nomar and Joe Cronin. Um, he's third in stolen bases at 74, again behind uh, Nomar and uh, Freddie Parent, who played in the early 1900s, so very different game back then. Batting average, he's third at 291, uh, behind again Cronin and Nomar. Uh, third in slugging at 458, third in OPS, third in OPS plus, 814 and 116, and fifth in OBP at 356. So the question that I had for you, the first question that I had for you that was also a listener question from our listener uh, House of Kuzu um, was, has... You know, uh, has Nomar, has Xander done enough in your eyes over his time here with the Red Sox to surpass Nomar as the greatest shortstop in Red Sox history? No. He hasn't. But it's close. He's number two. Which I think, um, was it 2020 before the 2020 season when we were in that COVID lull that you did your uh, your whole archival yep. thing? I believe you had Bogart had second Nomar to Nomar. Yep. I still think that's true two years later. Um, this was the first season that Bogart's, by Fangraph's war, had a season that was worth six war. Uh, Nomar did that four times. Uh, mm-hmm. And twice he had seasons over seven. He was really freaking good. Uh, better batting average, um, better OBP, slightly on the OBP. Um, didn't strike out all that much. Like you mentioned, he had more homers and stuff too. It's just the um, on-field performance was crazy. Really, really good defense as well. So um, not quite, not quite number one shortstop in Red Sox history. Still got to give that to Nomar. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Um, this is one of those situations where if the Red Sox do find a way to bring Xander back and he plays another, you know, five to eight years uh, with the team, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, he becomes that guy for me uh, just because of longevity, and he's going to own all of these stats, or most of them, maybe not the rate stats, but he's going to own at least... All of the uh, the counting stats for sure. Um, shortly, I mean, he he will re- really only need one more season probably to to get the home runs and all those other things. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you look at Nomar, um, he, he's he's got a lot going for him. Um, Xander's got four silver sluggers and four All Star appearances. Nomar had just one silver slugger, uh, but he also played at the same time as. Jeter and A-Rod and uh, Miguel Tejada, who were pretty damn good. And I know that Xander's got some pretty damn good contemporaries as well. Um, Six all-star appearances for Nomar. Two batting titles. Xander has none. uh, And the Rookie of the Year award as well that Nomar won. Um, I think Nomar definitely had the highest highs, but I think that longevity matters for a lot. So um, I agree with you. But 
And, and, and Xander has the two rings. We have to give him credit for that, too. Like, the, the two rings is sort of a big deal. But, um, man, this one this one's close. Because you know, I mean, Xander's my favorite player. Um, and it's not particularly close in that category. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I think Nomar is the guy who is just a little bit more talented. Yeah. It is close, though. It's very close. It's only going to get closer. Yeah. I, you know, if, if, if Xander does come back, it's his. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. But great question. Um, and we had that on the agenda uh, before you even gave us that question. So appreciate that. Um, next question comes from Gavin Blackburn. And he says, there's almost certainly a few trades coming, but lots of fans don't want to see top prospects go. Do you think fans value prospects too highly, particularly ones in the lower minors? Keaton, this seems kind of tailor-made for uh, the former host of the Dynasty Guru podcast. It is. What do you think about this? Yeah. And I will wholeheartedly throw myself in this as well. The answer is yes. Absolutely yes. Um, the bust rate of prospects is just astronomically high. That when you have the chance to turn them into actualized talent, you should do that at just about every opportunity. Um, and that's what Dave Dombrowski was actually really good at doing. Um, when you trade prospects for actualized talent, uh, basically what you're doing is you're, um, the best case scenario is the prospects that you traded reach the talent that you're acquiring. So... Or if it's the other way around, if you're the one that is trading the talent away for prospects, the best case scenario is the prospects that you just acquired reach the talent level that you just traded away. Chances are that's not going to happen. Um, so when you have the chance to flip that and acquire actualized talent, you really should do that. Um, but we love dreaming on potential, and it's the... Um, kind of like the uh the fear of a false positive there um I forgot what that actually is called in psychology but there's an actual term for that there but you don't no one wants to be the guy who trades fernando tatis for two awful years of 35 year old james shields no one wants to do that but that is uh the possibility of that being an outcome is absurdly rare that you shouldn't be afraid of it um but because there is just the mere possibility of that happening paralyzes everybody with fear. But it's even as honestly, it's not even just fans. It's major league baseball teams themselves. They covet the potential over actualized talent uh, far often uh, more than the actual talent itself. Uh, and we see that play out a lot. I mean, obviously, there's a little bit other factors because they're actually paying these guys monies. And there's a few other economic factors in there as well. But um, that's why when we were talking about the fact that uh, Washington was actually entertaining offers for Juan Soto, the Red Sox should have given literally to like, here's our farm. Who do you want? Take right. your pick, and they're yours. Because the, <laughs> the chances that Red Sox have anybody in their system right now that's going to turn into Juan Soto is zero, and Juan yeah. Soto is 23 years old. So, um, yeah, you know, we definitely do. And I fully throw myself in that too because I get attached to these guys, and I'm like, no, but this is like 99th percentile is like he could become, I don't know, Mark Bellhorn. That's crazy. Why would we ever trade that guy? When in reality, they're probably going to flame out in AAA and maybe become like Michael Chavis. Yeah, because even when they do work out, like I remember – uh, one of the most highly touted prospects in recent memory uh, was Byron Buxton. Everybody yep. was sort of billing him as the next Mike Trout. Um, and even when the talent does manifest itself on the field, like we've seen Byron Buxton over the last few years with crazy power, crazy speed, and elite defense. But the one knock on Byron Buxton is he just can't stay on the field. Um, so when you have a guy 
who does do all of those things at the major league level. Like, let's just use Xander Bogarts as an example here. A guy who's very durable, who produces at an all-star level year after year after year. You can't just assume that because Marcelo Mayer is like a really good prospect uh, that he is going to turn into Xander Bogarts because Xander Bogarts is just so much more rare than we as fans sort of give him credit for. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's the attractiveness of the of the unknown that always gets people. But to, to answer your question, Gavin, yes, yes, yes. We absolutely overvalue prospects, and we should be very aggressive about trading uh, top prospect talent for established major leaguers. And that's why... You know, I know that Keaton and I are, are both in on the Sean Murphy thing. You know, if it if it takes a couple of the team's top four prospects to go get Sean Murphy, you know, I I do that in a second. Derrickson Profar was the number one prospect in all of baseball for two years. Two years. And he was like untouchable, the next five-tool god. Uh, and his first two-war season was this year. Yeah. Happens, man. Yeah, happens a lot. A lot more than you'd you'd like it to. Yeah, and I think it it has even more volatility in baseball than any other sport. Yep. So. Okay, and our last question of the night, and our last question of the 2022 podcasting season comes from Diego Fernandez, and uh, you know. Very appropriately, this is a question about Heim Bloom. So it's uh, the perfect way to end the show. Is there anything Bloom could do to earn your trust if he doesn't re-sign uh, or ex- uh, re-sign Xander plus extend Devers? Specifically, if he were to address the glaring bullpen, the rotation and outfield issues, making the 2023 team objectively better, is that enough to do or do those two things simply matter too much to the team this is a really interesting question so you know if he doesn't get that extension done with Devers and doesn't re-sign Xander but does make substantial improvements to this team is that enough for us to trust Bloom what's your take on that Keaton well we actually we talked about this on a previous episode um Maybe a little over a month ago. Or maybe it was like right around the trade deadline, I think. Okay. Um, we talked about this, and my answer was yes, uh, and your answer was no. Um, so my answer was, I mean, it was similar to this. It was basically the, um, I think it was centered around Bogarts. Like, if he doesn't resign Bogarts, then is there, like, do you lose all that goodwill? And my response was, well, what's plan B? It's, does team get better without him does he have a backup plan and does someone get replaced and i was like if, if that's the case then yes uh, and you were like no absolutely not bogarts has got to be here for that so i'm curious to see if since then your answer has changed but uh, my answer is still the same so yeah I, I mean it would absolutely suck to see him go and he means a lot to this team um and i, I would prefer him be on the roster but if the team gets you know objectively better for 2023 and is in the, you know, we're playing October baseball a year from now, then yeah, it was the right move to not resign him and make whatever other moves there were. So I would agree with that. And, and I would say that whatever was lost was regained. So let's, let's play this scenario a little bit more. Um, So fixing the bullpen Let's just say they sign, I don't know, let's just say Edwin Diaz and trade for another eighth inning type guy in the bullpen. In the rotation, they go out and sign Carlos Rodon and they make a trade. Let's just say they trade a year of Devers because they can't reach an extension with them for a young, controllable, really good outfielder. Uh, then you have a big hole at third base. I don't know what you do there. And you got to do something at shortstop. So 
you still have to like I don't know how this works I don't it doesn't make financial sense to me that like you could potentially not bring back Xander no you're not going to extend Devers and like still be able to fill all of the holes that you're creating like I, I feel like you have to do at least one of these things you have to either bring back Xander or extend Devers like you don't have to do both even though all optimally I want you to do both but you I, I feel like there's no way to make this team really good next year without doing at least one of those things You don't think there's a chance that they don't extend Devers and just go into next season with him hanging in the balance? And just let him walk? Like, get a year out of him? I don't, I just, I cannot possibly see Heim Bloom letting him go into his last year. Because think about what you could get for a year of Rafael Devers. You know, you could get. I don't know. Presumably a lot. I I don't know. The the Mookie thing is really screwing me up. Because I'm yeah. not sure. Like we <laughs> saw what a year of Mookie got, right? And it wasn't a ton, but it was still like some. It was also paired with pieces. salary dumping. Right. Price. Like you you would assume that with the financials being what they are right now, especially Red Sox have very healthy books right now, that they'd be able to maximize value for Devers and also he's younger than Mookie was when they yeah. traded Mookie. I was just so, that up too. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like I don't think a a, a even a 5 or a 6 war season next year is worth just bringing him back and letting him walk. I think you either extend him or trade him. So, it, it's hard for me to believe that they go into the year with him just as is. Makes sense. But then, so... What's your... Uh, I guess in that scenario... Mm-hmm. They could... Put... Casas at third. Keep Hosmer at first. Find some remedy for DH... You said they've got some fantastic new outfielder that you just traded Devers for. Mm-hmm. So there's that hole. So I guess there's... And then they sign Trey Turner. There you go. Just doesn't make sense. It's not cheaper. <laughs> it's not cheaper to do all those things. Uh, no, I'm just going to say no. It doesn't have to be cheaper. He just said team being better. Yeah, no. I, I don't... Diego, I'm too emotional about this, so I don't think I can look at a way that this baseball team could potentially be better uh, without at least one of Xander Endeavors in yeah. the future. Well, the so. good news is um, it's only going to get worse from here until something happens. So, Great. Yeah. Great. I'm here for it. All right. Well, I just want to give a, a big shout out to all of our listeners here who have stayed with us uh, throughout the year. And, um, you know, if you're a longtime listener to somebody who's been listening to Keaton and I for the last, I don't know, how many years have we been doing this? A long time. Long time. Um, this is the, the seventh year of this show coming to a close. So I just really appreciate everybody out there who, uh, you know, takes the time to download our our episode every day and listen to us and if you enjoy the show um you know let us know it's always great to to get that feedback you know sh- shoot us a message on twitter uh, you can find keaton at the spoken keats you can find me at at jake uh and uh you know the over the monster account at over the monster but we do appreciate you and um you know any rates and reviews that you guys can give us at the end of the season let us know and uh obviously any feedback for things that you'd like for next year too uh, because we will be back and we will be uh, you know bringing you updates in the off season as well this podcast isn't going anywhere it'll just get a little less frequent in the off season uh, and then we'll be fully fired up for uh, 2023 so we've got a lot in store we're already starting our planning process uh, for that but we couldn't do it without you listeners so uh, Keaton thank you 
for everything that you do, editing the podcast and, you know, coming up with uh, cool research and, you know, just, just being here with me every week. Yeah, thanks for hosting. And I mean, echo everything you said about the listeners and, and keeping this going. This is really fun to do. So I appreciate you guys tuning in every week. All right. Well, that is the year. So thank you very much. And we will be with you again on our next episode. And we'll be looking towards 2023.